If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we are looking at one verse this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Now I know what you're thinking, one verse, this is going to be the fastest sermon ever that I've ever heard pastor preach. Well, not so fast. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Matthew 1, 21. This morning we want to look at the purpose of Christmas and the fact that Jesus is the reason for the season. I know that may sound cliche. We'll get to that in just a moment. Matthew 1, 21, the scripture says from the English Standard Version, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is Christmas Day. Many people have opened their gifts. They have perhaps read the Christmas story. Their time of shopping is complete. And now they can take a break. Some have perhaps bravely showed up to church on Christmas morning while others stayed home because they felt that they had to relax. Others perhaps even have done something crazy today. Maybe they've said that they would not even open gifts until they attend church. Perhaps they wanted the focus of this day to be on Christ. Some would make the argument that Jesus was most likely not even born in December. And perhaps they would be correct. We really don't know. My master's degree is in theology. I have studied it on multiple levels, and there are theologians and people much smarter than I am on both sides of the debate, and there's actually some great works to prove that Jesus was born in December. So I would challenge you that when you hear people proclaim that Christmas is just a pagan holiday made up by Christians to overtake Christmas, I would really challenge you to study that and challenge them on such a belief. But anyway, that's for another time. When it comes to Christmas, there's some important questions that we need to ask and answer. A few weeks back, we talked about one of those questions. We said that question was this, who is Jesus? But there's another question That should really come to our mind around this time of the year, around Christmas time, when we look at and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And that question is this, why did Jesus come? Martin Luther once said, if anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is the true God and true man who died and rose again for us, all the other articles of the Christian faith will fall in place for him and firmly sustain him. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. He is the basis for our faith. He is the treasure that we seek. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. He is the bright and morning star, the one that has come, the Alpha and the Omega. In him all treasure and wisdom and knowledge of man is hidden, even with this truth. All heresies, abuses, errors, idolatries, ungodliness, 
and the likes that we have seen come into the church today have arisen at least in part because of Christianity's faith concerning who Jesus is. The story of Christmas is not primarily a story about the birth of a baby born in a manger who would one day grow up to be a great moral teacher and a great example for us to follow. Yes, Jesus did do all those things. However, even though those things are great, the Christmas story is the story of the birth of the Savior. Listen to what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In fact, salvation is in his name. The Hebrew name Jesus is Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. The plain and simple truth is this. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then you do not know him at all. Because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. This morning I'm going to answer four questions from this verse for us. And I'm even going to give them to you in advance so you will know what they are. So, so uh, here's the questions that we will answer. First, who came? Then we will answer, why did he come? And then we will answer, who does he save? And finally, we will answer, what did he accomplish? So let's look at that first question. Who is it that came? This is the first question I believe it's answered in this verse, but, but I want to go into some detail of this question when we look at who came. First, I want us to see an extraordinary birth. Interesting enough, we have an ordinary name given to one of extraordinary birth. We know that Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. She is a virgin and has never had a relationship with a man. This is given to us in verses uh, 18 and verse 20. Now, of course, skeptics reject such a thing because it was miraculous. Who had ever heard of a virgin birth to a son? Who had ever heard of such a thing? In fact, some scholars even deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And some well-meaning pastors even would say one does not have to necessarily accept the virgin birth of Christ and that readers can draw their own conclusions. Of course, I disagree with all of them. In fact, even a, a well-known pastor just this past week said that very thing and people were sharing it all over social media and listen to what this person said. Look at what Andy Stanley said from his pulpit that you don't necessarily have to believe in the virgin birth. And, and to that, I say, what a bunch of baloney. The reason why I disagree with him is this. Because of the Gospels. For instance, Matthew was one of the twelve disciples. That means he had direct access to both Mary and Jesus. Furthermore, Luke states that he carefully researched his Gospel. And he records the same thing. A 
virgin birth. If we reject the virgin birth and say that it is up to interpretation, then we are rejecting the testimony of two of the disciples of Jesus Christ and historians who were alive at the time who are recording actual facts from history that has been accepted by thousands upon thousands of scholars during the time. There is no reason to reject the virgin birth of Christ unless one rejects that God performs miracles. There's no reason. A miracle is when God interrupts the laws of his creation for his purpose, which we see God doing throughout all of Scripture. We see this. Therefore, we should accept the virgin birth as historical fact, historically true, because the evidence bears it out. But not only do we see this extraordinary birth, but we see the importance of a virgin birth. Some would say, well, like I said, some would say, well, the virgin birth is not really necessary. Well, I beg to differ. The virgin birth is important. Why is it important? Well, it is important because the virgin birth affirms that Christ is God. If he was born of a human father and mother through natural biological processes, then he is not God. He's not God in human flesh. He is instead just a normal person, just like you and I. He's a normal man. Why? Because if he was born by natural process, then his existence would have started at conception. But he is God. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal. Even Jesus made this clear when he said to the people, before Abraham was born, I am. In John chapter 8, verse 58. However, the virgin birth is important for another reason. If Jesus was born through natural process, then he would have been born into sin just like everyone else born since the fall of Adam and Eve. If there were if that were the case, he would have needed to have been his own savior. If he had sin of his own, then he could not have died as a perfect substitute for other people's sin. To be born as a man, he had to have a human parent, which would affirm his humanity, but at the same time, or at the same time, being born of the Spirit affirmed his deity. Mary was told by the angel that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. This is the reason her child could be called the Son of God. This is what we have in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when the angel says to Mary, You will have a son, even though she is a virgin, and she will give that son a name. And that means uh, that name that she will give him means God with us. Jesus is a sinless. He's sinless, no sin in him. He is God in the flesh. And because he is fully God and fully man, he can represent the human race as a sin bearer, as a son of God. His sacrifice is acceptable to God. So we see the importance of, of his virgin birth. Now let's look at his name. His name is Jesus. Finally, we notice that the angel tells Joseph to name him Jesus. We already noted a few things about this name, but the Greek for Jesus is Jesus, from the Hebrew Yeshua, the contracted form of Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. In the shorter form, Yeshua, the stress is on the verb. Hence, he will certainly save. For the Jews, a person's name had great significance. The name of Jesus was no different. The name Jesus points to who he is. And that being that he is the Savior. 
When we say Jesus Christ, Christ is a title. It is not the name of Jesus. It's not his name is Jesus and Christ is his last name, but rather that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah or he is the anointed one. In one sense, the name of Jesus is common, but in another sense, it's not common because a name is given to him by God the Father and the Father chose his name to reveal his commission, which is to save sinners. And it is through his name that we make our appeal to God the Father for salvation. So the answer for who came is this, Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary and who is the eternal God in human flesh who came to the earth as the Savior. Let's look at the second question. Why did he come? Why did he come? This question is also answered in our verse. It says, he will save his people from their sins. Now we read that and we perhaps think, well, that's pretty easy. But let me ask you this. What does the word save mean in that passage of scripture? Have you ever really given much thought to that word? It's a powerful word. When we stop and think about it, let me ask you this. If someone is in six inches of water and they say, I can't swim. And you go out there to help them to shore. Have you saved them? Not really, because they're not really in danger. They're in six inches of water. They're probably not going to drown. You save someone who can't do anything to save themselves. So if someone stops breathing and you administer CPR to them, you save them. Or if someone is drowning and you dive into the water and you bring them out of the water, you save them. You get the picture. They can't save themselves. They need some help to be saved. And so when it says that he will save his people from their sins, what it is saying is that prior to Jesus actually saving them, his people that it's talking about are helplessly and hopelessly lost in their sin. And in fact, the wrath of God is what is abided upon them. They were completely and utterly alienated from God. In fact, the scripture says that we are enemies of God and they are unable to free themselves from their desperate condition. A savior is the one who has the power to do the rescuing in the first place. Because people can't rescue themselves. Now Jesus is the only one who has the power given to him by God the Father to save his people from their sin. Now the idea that Jesus being the only one with the power to save his people is crucial because there are many people who are evangelical, even Southern Baptists, who would say Jesus had the ability to save someone. And his ability to save someone is contingent on that person's ability to exercise their free will. In fact, they would approach it like this. Jesus wants to save them. Jesus even longs to save them. He has done everything that he can do to save them. If Jesus could, he would save them. He just can't save them because they are not willing to be saved. So Jesus sits in heaven wishing that everyone would just for some reason say yes to his salvation. 
But in reality, he's unable to save anyone because it does not depend on him. It depends on that sinner's free will in order to be saved. In fact, some people have argued that if God could save everyone, but only chose to save some, then God must somehow be immoral. There is one fatal flaw with such silly presuppositional thinking, and that is this. God is not subject to man's fallen notion of morality. What is more, look at what the verse says. It does not say that Jesus desperately hopes that someone will eventually respond to his offer of salvation and that one day they might be saved. That's not what it says. It does not say that Jesus will do his best. He will do all he can, but the final decision rests upon that person choosing to be saved. It doesn't say that. It does not say that he might save or that he probably will save. If things go right, um, uh, he'll save them. Text the church says that he will will save his people from their sin. He will do it, period. There's not a contingency clause in that statement. It has nothing to do with human effort. Salvation is from God alone. And when the almighty God of this universe, the creator of heaven and the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords purposes to save a people, he saves the people. Plain and simple, he is God. We cannot steal away the power of an almighty God. In Isaiah, we read of God breaking Assyrian's power, Assyria's power, who was a mighty empire of that time. If he's able to accomplish his plan by breaking a nation, don't you think that he can save his people from their sins? Later in Isaiah, we read of God raising up King Cyrus to accomplish his purpose for Israel. If God can raise up and take down pagan kings all in order to accomplish his purpose, don't you think he can save his people from their sins? Listen closely, church. Matthew 1.21 is a fulfillment of promise of Psalm 130. The psalmist cries in desperation to God because he knows that if his sins are counted against him, he can't stand in the presence of a holy God because no one can. But he says there is forgiveness found in God and that forgiveness is found based on the hope of the promise that God will redeem his people which at that time Israel from their sin and Jesus is the promised Savior that redeems God's people from their sin. If we somehow think that God's sovereign purpose to save his people is contingent on feeble, fickle, and frail free will of man, it goes against the entirety of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes it clear that salvation comes only because God has lavished it on us. He lays out the salvation is totally from God. He puts it like this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1.5. Whose will? His will. He made us known to us. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. Ephesians 1.9. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will Ephesians 1:11 you say wait a second pastor i thought this was a christmas sermon it's it is it is a christmas sermon the sermon is the purpose of christmas and his incarnation was to save his people 
That's why we have Christmas. I'm simply saying to you that all of Scripture repeatedly affirms to us that salvation is from God who sits on the throne forever and ever and ever. When God purposes that Jesus will save his people from their sins, you can take it to the bank because there is no doubt about the statement. He will accomplish that purpose to the glory of the Father and by his grace. And our only response to that should be, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. May you receive honor and glory forever. Why did he come? Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh to save his people from their sins. Question number three, who does he save? Well, the text answers that question for us. When it says he came to save his people from their sins. However, when the text says his people, who are his people? Is this the Jews only? Some people read this and say, well, his people are the Jews. They're God's chosen people. However, if we say that this is referring to the Jews, then we're forced to say that all Jews will be saved because it says he will save his people from their sins. And if we are forced to say that all Jews are saved, then we are forced to say that God has failed in his purpose because all Jews are not saved. Because man, you and I know, we know that there are Jews that go to their grave rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So again, I ask, who then are his people? His people are, are all of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul makes this clear in Romans 9, that the promise is not just for Israel, nor just for the descendants of Abraham, but rather anyone who has placed their faith in Christ are truly descendants of Abraham. So again, his people is anyone that places their faith in Christ. Is it the world? Is when, when he says all people, when he says that he came to save his people, is that talking about the world? Well, we know it can't be talking about the world. Some might say, well, his people, that's the whole world. After all, the scripture does say that he is the savior of the world. And while there is a sense in which he is the savior of the world, in fact, that he saves all nationalities of people, not just Jews. But if the purpose of Christ's coming was to save everyone who ever lived again, we would come to the conclusion that he has failed unless we are universalists and we say that everybody gets to go to heaven no matter what god does not fail in his purpose so we must conclude that his people is not the whole world it is as we said everyone who believes in him others would say this that when this verse says his people it's represent referencing everyone who believes in jesus for eternal life and i agree with that statement like we said earlier, his people is everyone who places their faith in Christ. However, the Bible is clear. Everyone is spiritually dead. Unwilling. Unable to come to Christ in faith. So what is it that enables anyone to be his people? The answer to that question is this. According to John chapter 6, verse 44 and 65, anyone who believes in Jesus as Savior and Lord does so because God has chosen them and drawn them to himself. The spirit of God has taken them from spiritual death to spiritual life. He opened their eyes to, the, to, to what they couldn't see for themselves. He brought them out of darkness into light. Both saving faith and repentance are gifts that are given to God's chosen people. The only reason anyone believes is because God has granted them faith to believe. Acts chapter 5 verse 31 
Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The only reason that anyone believes is because God has granted them faith to believe. So when this verse says his people, it's speaking of all those that the Father has given to the Son. All of those that he has purchased with his blood from every tribe, from every nation, and every tongue, they are his people. And he will, not might, not probably, he will save them from their sin. To be clear, his people are sinners in need of a savior. If you do not realize you're a sinner in need of a savior, then the coming of Jesus is absolutely meaningless. Being a good person will not get you to heaven. Jesus came to save sinners and all of his people are sinners. Jesus Christ, who is God, came, was born of a virgin to save his people from their sins. His people are all those that the father has given to him and he will not leave any of them out. He will accomplish what he has set out to do, which is to which is uh, leads us to our final question, and that's this: What did he accomplish? What did he accomplish? Well, he saved his people from their sins. How did he do that? Jesus' death on the cross did exactly what it was supposed to do. We call that the substitutionary atonement, meaning that it paid the price for our sin, but it was also very specific. Jesus dies for those that he came to save. I need you to track with me here because we are talking about the sufficiency of the death of Christ. Jesus did not die for the potential of humanity to be saved. He did not die so, so later on potentially someone might decide to believe in him. Instead, his death actually purchased his elect people from their slavery of sin. The price of that purchase was his blood so that they do not have to pay for their own sin. Those who he purposed to save, he saved through his death. His death on the cross was sufficient to save all of those he died for. Not some of those he died for, but all of those he died for. Not just give them the potential to be saved, but it was enough to save all those he died for. All those that the Father has given to the Son will come to him, and of those that come to Jesus, he loses none of them. All who the Father has given to him receive eternal life. So when we read that, he will save them from their sins. It means he saves them from the penalty of their sin, which is hell. This happens the instant a sinner believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Not only does he save them from the penalty of their sin, but he also saves them from the power of sin. Here's the saying. Salvation from the power of sin is a gradual process. We talked about this last week a little bit. Remember we talked about this word sanctification? It happens over time as we walk more and more dependent on the Spirit and it will not be complete until we reach heaven. If someone is not growing and, and is not battling against sin, then they should question whether 
they are saved from sin or not. So the verse is simple. Jesus will save his people from their sin. My question to you is this. Are you one of his people? You might say this. Well, how do, how do I know? How do I know? Well, do you know that you're a sinner? That you will be punished for your sin? And that you deserve to be judged? And if you say, well, yeah, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I, I'm deserving of God's judgment. Then do you realize that Jesus' death on the cross was for your sin? And have you placed your trust in his death on the cross to save you? And if you say yes to all of this, then I ask this. Is there any evidence in your life that Christ has saved you from your sin? You see, it's possible to say you believe. And it's possible to have an intellectual faith that does not save you. Has God changed your heart? Do you mourn over sin? Do you confess your sin and forsake your sin and seek to obey God? Do you seek to know more about Christ? These are what makes a believer. Not just saying, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. If you say, yes, I do all those things. Then this verse this morning should bring joy to you. It should bring joy to your heart to read that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Because you are his people. You are saved from the penalty of sin. And you are being saved from the power of sin. I mean, if you're anything like me, that's a long process, right? Being saved from the power of sin. I struggle with sin on a daily basis. I'm sure that many of you struggle with sin, maybe even on your way here this morning. Right? We're being saved from the power of sin. We, we gradually bring about our sanctification through Jesus Christ. But if you answer no, if you say, well, I, I, I'm not sure if Christ has saved me, then I say this to you. Don't rest until you know for sure. Do not try to experience peace this Christmas without Christ as your Savior. Either your sins are on you or they're on Christ. There is no in-between. There is no, well, they're over here somewhere. They're either on you or they're on Christ. And Jesus calls out to you, come, and I will give you rest. He said this, no one who comes to me will I cast out. If you come, you can know that you are one of his people. And he will save you from your sin. So as you celebrate Christmas this morning, I pray that you will celebrate resting in the truth that Jesus Christ came to this earth. God incarnate to save his people from their sin. And I pray this Christmas as you celebrate God incarnate, that babe in the manger, may you also look to the cross and be so thankful that he paid the price for your sin so that you can go to heaven. All the glory of Jesus 
fully displayed on you and I. Wow. What a promise. That, my friends, is the meaning of Christmas. We're going to sing a song this morning. And if the Lord's spoken to you or you feel like you need some prayer...